0: Beloved congregation of the Lord, will you turn in your Bibles again to Luke chapter 3, and let us read verses 15 and 16. And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not, John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Well, I think it would be a very easy case to make that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world and his beginning of his ministry of salvation is the most important historical fact which all the history books of the world can record. I think you could prove that by how this historian Luke sets forth the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry before us, tracing Back his lineage all the way back to Adam throughout all of the different men who followed him, all the way to his adopted father Joseph and his biological mother Mary. You can see it, how it's a historical fact, no fairy tale. It's in black and white in verses 1 and 2, the 15th year. Of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Not the 13th or the 14th. Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea. And other historical figures being noted. You can see how this this episode is recorded. With such climactic um, drama in this chapter ascending forth of the forerunner john the baptist preaching in the words of isaiah the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare ye the way of the lord make his paths straight every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be brought low there it seems as though all the people of the world are set forth figuratively in two, one of two ways, either as hills and mountains, elevating themselves in pride and ungodliness. They are brought low in the valleys and the lowly places, setting forth those who in humility bow themselves before God in submission. Those are the ones who are lifted up in the way of grace says that the crooked shall be made straight, the rough ways shall be made smooth. A great transformation is about to be brought forth as this, the son of righteousness rises in the sky with healing in his wings. The great beginning of Christ's ministry, this historical fact. And with the coming of the Lord Jesus and his forerunner, John the Baptist. We also have something that is of great and um, importance to the covenant people of God, the institution of Christian baptism, marked at the beginning of Christ's ministry through his servant, John the Baptist, and solemnized by his own participation in that baptism, setting that ordinance apart For all of his own. And it's interesting that for those who do deep study of the Word of God and would perhaps compare this chapter with uh, um, Acts chapter 19, they see a discrepancy between uh, the baptism of John and Christian baptism as 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 though they were two different things. And if you still uh, have that belief yourself, I'm happy to speak with you after the service. I can refer you to many wonderful theologians like Francis Turton, who really show that they are really one ordinance. But I think you could prove it from the simple fact that in the text which I began to read there in verse 16, it is a baptism that was um, instituted from the very beginning in the name of Jesus Christ. When John began to baptize, he did so in the name of the Lord Jesus, as indeed all ministers of the gospel have since. I've chosen to title this sermon, The Baptism of Repentance. It's highlighted in the inauguration of Christ's ministry and that of his forerunner, John the Baptist, And it's a reminder that we ought never to think about our own baptism apart from the Lord's teaching about repentance. And with the Lord's help, let us consider that theme the baptism of repentance. The baptism of repentance. And I'd like to see three things first, the role of the minister, second, the role of the Savior, and third, The role of sinners. Three things in this baptism of repentance. The role of the minister. The role of the Savior. And the third, the role of sinners. Well, children, when you think about ministers of the gospel... Maybe you think about people who go off to a seminary and study books about the Bible and and how to teach it. and, And they learn from people with PhDs. But when we come to this man by the name of John, the only seminary he went to was a barren wilderness and desert where he lived for years eating locusts and wild honey, praying to God and receiving a special word from God. When you think about ministers of the gospel, maybe you think about people in, in black suits like this, and, and who wear ties, but this man, John the Baptist, he went about in a hairy camel suit, a rough man, someone who spoke with gravity and with passion, Maybe think about people with with good people skills, with, with warmth and sensitivity. But this man, John the Baptist, he seems to have the sensitivity of a battle axe. He's laying forth the truth about God's judgment and wrath against sin. And all the people there in Israel, they are taking notice of his ministry there on the Jordan River. They're all coming out there to hear of his preaching. And those who receive his preaching in the way of faith and repentance, they submit unto this ordinance of baptism. And so... There were many questions about this as we read. People were were wondering, is this the Christ? You don't just start doing something in the way of worship and preaching unless you are sent from God. Well, maybe this man, they thought, maybe this man is actually the one we've been mating for, the great Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of his people. But John the Baptist, he was very clear. He was not the one they were waiting for. He was a minister and servant of the Messiah. He said in this way in verse 16, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And here we do see what is the role of every faithful gospel minister. We baptize with water. We do so on the command of the Lord Jesus. This is not only to be done at that time. He gave instructions to his apostles and to their successors, all ministers of the gospel. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We are to use water, that thing which Christ especially set apart, in the way of washing. And we are to do this, as John did, in the name of Christ, indeed in the name of the Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is... What John is doing, this is his role, this is his calling. We, we know it wasn't just something he thought up because it says there in verse 2, The word of God came unto John. God has spoken that this is to be done. Where God speaks, we must listen, we must pay attention. What is it that God is doing here with This baptism. Well, it's laid forth for us there. In verse 3, it says that he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Well, children, that sounds like a bit of an unusual word, right? Remission. What, What does that mean? Well, that's just a word for forgiveness. You understand that, right? You've done something wrong, and so you go to that person you've done something wrong to, you've stolen something, or you've said something wrong, you go and you say, please forgive me. Please forgive me. But this isn't the forgiving that we receive from one another. This is about the forgiveness of sins by God. And, we think that's a small thing—a small thing—to be forgiven of your sins by God. It shows that we don't understand what that means at all. For John and his preaching, and for anyone who understands the Bible, the forgiveness of sins is something that is hugely important. You see, John was preaching about the coming judgment. He spoken verse 17, that there was coming a mighty judge who was like a farmer. He was going to gather the the wheat and the corn and he was going to separate them. He was going to gather all that precious harvest in safety in his barn, but he was going to burn. He was going to burn all that was left there with unquenchable fire. The teaching is... That without the forgiveness of sins, there is no hope for us. God is going to judge every man according to his deeds, whether they be good or bad. Every thought, every word, every action, it is all recorded in his book. And the great question that John had was, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about the fact that God is just and that you are a sinner? He said in verse 7, to the multitude that came to be baptized to him. You'd think, wow, they're coming to be baptized. Maybe he's he's going to really welcome them and give them a very kind, gentle message. No. What does he say? Oh, generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And calling them the children of snakes or the generation of vipers He is showing the terrible spiritual condition of every one of us as we are born into this world. We are the children of the devil by nature. We are like the devil in our rebellion against God, in our hatred of God, in our love for sin, in our love for self. And the question becomes, how can we escape the judgment of God? What hope is there for you or me or anyone to escape the fires of hell in just payment for our sins? What else matters more than that, congregation? What else have you brought into this place that you are occupying your thoughts with and you are not thinking about this? How shall I escape the wrath to come? Well, there was... A wonderful promise that in the new covenant there would be a revelation of God's grace that would bring about perfect atonement for sin. Perfect satisfaction of this holy God. In Jeremiah 31 verse 34 there was that statement that God would indeed redeem a people unto himself. Jeremiah 31, verse 34, they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Forgiveness with God, where God would not hold the debt of your sins against you, but forgive it. Count it not against you, but welcome you into his family. Receive you into his kingdom. Such wonderful promise here. And so John says this baptism is for the remission of sins. We are to look at this baptism not as just a a human ritual, nor are we to see it as primarily about a statement about ourselves, what we think, what we believe. No, it is about God's promise of the forgiveness, of the remission of sins. Reminded of that story about Martin Luther. There he was in Wartburg's castle and the devil appeared to him. He gave him a great long list of his sins, trying to drive him into despair. You know what Luther did? He grabbed that inkblot and he threw it at him and he said, Away with you, devil. I am baptized. And whatever you think about Martin Luther or whatever you think about all aspects of his theology, there was something there. Pointing to the fact that baptism speaks of the promise of forgiveness of sins. That where God has so promised to forgive sins, we have no right to despair. We have no right to surrender unto the power of the devil. There is forgiveness with God that he may be feared. God has not left himself. Without a witness, he has not allowed this place to sink into the dominion of the devil, never to be rescued by his grace. God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes on him might not perish, but have everlasting life. And this gospel is not only preached, it is signified. It is signified in a concrete Visible way that none may ignore, that the guilt of your sin may be washed away through the gospel that is pictured in baptism. So, where the role of the minister is to baptize, it includes the preaching of the gospel. Wherever this would be separated from the ordinance of baptism, it becomes just superstition. It becomes just a ritual. It must keep the gospel promise central. But notice as well, there's not only the promise that is set forth here, but also this requirement. In verse uh, 3, we see that he, this was the preaching of the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. The reality is that while this promise Holds faithful that there is forgiveness with God. It was never to be separated from repentance. None were ever to think that you could live in your sins. That you could persist in hatred and rejection of God. And receive even the slightest bit of comfort from heaven. No. No. As the prophet Isaiah had spoken about in Isaiah chapter 55. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This forgiveness of sins, it was to be pronounced with this requirement of Repentance. A repentance that turns away from the works of the devil, turns away from this world of temptations, turns away from all that would oppose and hate God, and turning unto God as he's offered in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. A turning away from sin, a turning unto God in Christ. This is what true repentance is, a radical change of mind and heart and life, a mighty revolution in the soul, a turning unto God. This is indeed what is required of everyone, but particularly of those who would be baptized. Just as in the days of old you would have the prophet Moses speaking to those who had received circumcision. He would speak to them and he would tell them, don't be satisfied with the fact that you have that sign of the covenant in in your flesh, that you have received that mark upon your inclusion in the covenant community. He would preach as he did in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 15 to 16, that only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all people, as it is this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked." If you would receive the sign of the covenant in those days, then what was included there was also the requirement of the covenant that your heart be changed and that you turn from your sin, that you cut away all of that love for sin. And so likewise, under the new covenant, those who have been baptized receiving, that, receiving the sign of the new covenant, as John said, it is a baptism of repentance. There can be no peace with sin, with his people. They have a special revelation of this, that all comfort and joy from the promise of the gospel, it comes from this, submitting to the requirement that you turn from your sin and turn unto Jesus Christ. And so it is that we do well to remember this congregation. If we ever lose the preaching of repentance, we have lost the gospel. It was from the beginning, so shall it ever be, that there is not only the forgiveness of sins, there is also the writing of the law of God upon the heart. And all those who receive this salvation and the grace of it, they must turn from sin. This is... What we see is the role of the minister, John the Baptist. But you notice how John the Baptist doesn't only speak about his own role. He is so clear that there is a far greater role in baptism that is reserved for the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ. The role of the Savior he sets forth here. I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. can't mistake there that the first thing to understand about this role of the Savior, it is incomparably greater than the role of a minister. The reality is that John the Baptist could not tolerate in his heart that people look unto him. They would look unto him, a mere man, a mere sinner, and think that he has anything really to offer in the way of genuine hope. No, he pointed away from self and pointed to one who was greater. So it was, as he said, according to the book of John in chapter 1, verse 30, this is he of whom I have said, after me cometh a man which is preferred before me, because he was before me. John was a was one who was acquainted with the fact that the one who was coming was before him. Before him for he has eternally existed as the only begotten son of God. He is one who would truly bring about the reality of this baptism. Baptism, even what we've administered here, it is Something that can bring no comfort or peace whatsoever. If all it is, is the word of a minister and the action of a minister. No, there is in the true baptism that is spoken of here. Also this, there is the activity of Christ. And I would note this in passing. What is the mark of a false prophet and a false Christian? It is this. That their religion becomes about themselves and not about Christ. Show me one who would point you towards him or herself. Point me to one who would elevate him or herself. I will show you someone who does not know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Show me someone with sincerity and from the heart and would say, I am not worthy to carry his sandals. I am not worthy to be spoken in the same breath as the Lord Jesus. Show me someone who would say to you, forget about me. Don't remember me, but remember him. Focus upon him. Focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll show you someone who actually knows about the grace of God. Well, what is this incomparably great rule? What is this mighty Savior that he is speaking about here? Well, it is one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit. The reality is that the elevated language about baptism in the Bible will never be compatible with people who simply see it as water. Water. Who simply see it as words. No, the true baptism of the Bible has these things, not only the sign, but also what it signifies. The Bible refers to them both together. There is the activity of the minister, but also the activity of Christ. And we have many examples of that. You have Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11, where again there is a reference to circumcision. Colossians 3, verse 11, Ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism. The true baptism is something that cannot be accomplished with hands that either cut the flesh or would apply water unto the body. No, this is, is the circumcision which Christ accomplishes by his Holy Spirit. Likewise, it's spoken above in the book of Titus, chapter 3, verse 5, where the apostle writes, "...not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit." Of course that famous text in 1st Peter chapter 3 verse 21 baptism doth also now save us not he says not the putting away of the filth of the flesh but the answer of a good conscience toward God amazing love and mercy of Christ manifested to a hell-deserving sinner, granting unto them that washing not only of the body, not only of the guilt of sins, but as well the pollution of a foul, rebellious heart. Washing of the heart by the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit This is what brings about salvation. Baptism, you see, is about the grace of God and Jesus Christ, the undeserved gift of Christ giving himself and applying himself unto hearts that could never submit unto him if not he would embrace them in his love. Not that we loved him, but that he first loved us. There we have the mighty work of Christ there. But notice it doesn't just say baptized with the Holy Spirit, but also with fire, with fire. And if you look closely at the, at the Greek here, it seems extremely plain. that These are not two different things, but one thing that is spoken, spoken of. The Holy Spirit is here referred to as fire. Yeah, you know, children, I'm sure you've, you've seen fire at your home in like the fireplace, or you've, you've gone out into uh, the backyard to cook some hot dogs, and your parents tell you, right, you don't, you don't go near fire. You don't want to touch that. That's going to burn. It's going to hurt. And, and so you might say, well, I don't know if I want to have anything to do with this kind of baptism. Fire is scary. Fire is dangerous. But here is a fire, that comes not to destroy, but to heal, not to kill, but to make alive a fire that burns away that which would keep us away from the kingdom of God and of Christ. And I think that if you lay up this chapter of Luke chapter three and you would in in your homes read through uh, the book of Malachi, you'd see that it is really full of references to Uh, that prophecy. And I think that this would certainly be one of those notable examples of that. For if you would look in Malachi chapter 3 verses 1 to 3, I'd like you to listen to one of this most amazing prophecies about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says there in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, behold I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Here is the Lord Jesus referred to as the messenger of the covenant, the revealer of his saving covenant of grace. And what does it go on to say, but who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Two things there. There is a silver and gold being placed in the hands of one who is placing in fire, removing the impurities in the other. Example of a fuller or, or a launderer, someone who's washing laundry with soap. Both of them pictured here. There's the removing of something that is impure and the leaving of what is clean and pure. And it goes on in verse 3, and he shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver That they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Here it is, congregation, the great work of Christ burning away all the impurities of your heart that is so polluted and foul. Do you not know that if someone were to know your thoughts, to know what you desire, if it were right up behind me on a great big screen for everyone to read, would you not shudder to think of people recognizing what you have thought in the past week? But here is one, here is one with the mighty fire of the Holy Spirit who comes into the heart and burns up all those thoughts and desires and appetites and purifies that heart. So that you may be as a priest and a Levite, a servant of the living God, worshiping him and bowing before his royal throne and make no mistake, congregation. If there is not this change, if there is not this grace so that we have this break from sin, there is no hope for us. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord, except you are washed, except you are born of water and the spirit. You cannot see the kingdom of God. And so we're we're left with no ambiguity about this congregation. Baptism is a sacred thing. It brings together both the sign and the thing signified. So that you are able to mark in yourself, is it the case that you have come to this place where Christ has begun to work in your life? Have you begun to see that he is precious to you, that you cannot live without him? Have you desired and truly sought to live by his commandments? Are you submitting all things unto his royal scepter? Well, that owes not unto you, it owes to a work of his grace. And so you, believer, you may look at your baptism. You may see truly that he has sealed unto you his saving covenant. He has begun a good work, and you will see it through unto completion. And so it is baptism. It is something that supports our faith. It nurtures our faith. It grows our faith. We look outside of self, and we see his promise. And then having seen his promise both to forgive and to sanctify, we begin to trace the work of his spirit in our lives and we grow in our assured faith. A mighty thing, this baptism. But I would leave you, especially in the way of application, by considering in the third place, the role of sinners. The role of sinners. Well, John spoke very directly to those who came unto the Jordan River to hear about his baptism of repentance. And that he has set an example for all ministers of the gospel. I would also speak to you about what you must make of these things. What you must do with this baptism of repentance and the message of it. And the first thing ought we not to recognize that we must repent of indifference to this great work of God in baptism? We can see that plainly, right? If, if there is someone here who is not baptized nor interested in being baptized, and you have, have no interest in the things spoken of here, then you are basically saying that you are an enemy of your own soul. You are saying that you have no part in Christ and that you have no desire to know him or his salvation it's an awful thing to contemplate you would despise the work of christ in his baptism but we all know also to see that the one who is baptized and who also neglects to even think on these things is no less a despiser of baptism and for you, it was just that you were, minist- you were baptized by minister so-and-so, that you were a member of this or that church, that you were part of a, a particular federation of churches. Well, that will not do you one bit of good on the day of judgment. What good does it say that you are a son and daughter of Abraham? God can raise up from the stone sons and daughters of Abraham. No, what really matters is that you have what baptism signifies, you have Christ applied unto your soul. That is what we must occupy ourselves with, congregation. But not only not only is it wrong to neglect that for ourselves, but also for one another, especially the little ones amongst us. It is something we must solemnly take care about, that we instruct our little ones, about baptism. That we instruct little Heidi, that we instruct all those who have received their baptism, that they can find their salvation in no other place than the Lord Jesus Christ, the messenger of the covenant, the Lord of salvation, the son of righteousness, with healing in his wings. We point them unto Christ. We say it must be real for you as well. You must look unto him. You must receive him as he's offered to you in your baptism. Let us never neglect this congregation. Would it not be better in, in some ways, and I shudder to even say it, for the ordinance of baptism then to be lost, than it, for it to be corrupted, for it to become something that hardens us and our unrepentance, and causes us to see that we are sufficient of ourselves to stand before a holy God. Would it not make us just as bad as the Pharisees who took pride in their um, religious upbringing and their physical descent? Oh, may it never be. But we'd apply this as well. You must, you must repent of your unbelief. Not only your indifference, but also this, your unbelief. Is it not true that if you would be content to live in your sins, if you would not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you would live all your life in such doubts and fears as to never come to a sure and sound hope, then it owes simply to this. You do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, faithful Offer of salvation coming to you in baptism. Would you not take it very seriously if a king or a prime minister or a president were to personally write down a letter to put your name on it, to tell you what it is he's going to do for you, to place it in your hand? But so it is if the Lord Jesus has come to you in your baptism. He has spoken to you personally by name, saying that surely I will bless you if you will have me as your Lord and King and Savior. Do not harden your hearts, but submit unto the washing, unto the cleansing of my gospel. Rest in my promise and know that I am yours. Oh, it's a terrible thing terrible thing to not receive christ in our baptism no if you are without christ then your baptism will condemn you if you go to your grave without conversion for christ came to you personally we would say this in the third place congregation repent not only of your indifference and unbelief but also of your fruitlessness Your fruitlessness. You see, this repentance, it is something that bears fruit. John said that in verse 9. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. We are to care about our lives, congregation. We are to care about the things we are occupying ourselves with, the things that we are doing. Show me how you spend your time. Show me what fills your thoughts. Show me what fills your mouth. I will show you what really matters to you. I will show you whether there is life in your soul. If there is not fruit, congregation. If there is not the result of a life lived unto the glory of God in love, in gentleness, kindness, patience, self-control, if we are not about the glory of the king and the good of his people, if we have not this as our drive and our zeal, then ultimately we must think that we are either self-deceived or we are very weak Christians indeed. And what owes this weakness? Well, is it because we do not heed the preaching that is spoken of here? The axe is laid at the foot of the tree. How terrible to think that your life is just that short and that fragile. There you stand as a tree. You seem secure. You seem strong. You think you're going to live forever. How is it now that you see that the axe is right here? The axe is so close. In a moment or in a day, in a week, in a year, whatever it is, you will fall into the hands of the living God. And how terrible, how terrible, congregation, to waste, to waste the life which God has given you, idling away on things that do not matter, instead of getting right with God, instead of living for him. But oh, congregation, oh, congregation, if there is fruit, if there is fruit in your life today, you ought not to despise him if you have begun to live that life for Christ, if there is even one fruit on that tree, and if there you can see that pattern in your life, you're desiring to live for Christ, then cause it to humble you under his mighty hand. Cause it to say that he has been faithful unto his promise. Go to your baptism again. Present it before him in prayer. And say, Lord, you have been gracious unto me. You have good unto me. Continue to help me bear fruit, continue to help me to live unto you. It's in that way, congregation, of more and more surrendering unto Christ that you can take more and more joy and blessedness in him. Well, here we have a congregation, the wonderful teaching about baptism from the very beginning. I would ask each one of us to take these things to heart, to lay them before the Lord. Let us not be those like King Herod who would not hear what the the baptizer had to say and shut him away in a dungeon somewhere. No, today, if you will hear this message.